This is Define the Narrative Podcast with your host, Anne Argo. My guest today is Jane Mattis, founder of singlemothersbychoice.org. She is an author and a licensed therapist in New York City, and she is the original single mother by choice. This month, her organization celebrates 40 years trailblazing for women who have chosen to define the narrative and create a family of their own. Jane, thank you so much for joining us on Define the Narrative podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. You are the original single mother by choice, and your son now is how old? He's 41. He's 41, and a lot of the women that are now in our group are your son's age or even younger. What are your thoughts about a whole generation of women following in your footsteps? Well, I'm surprised, to be honest. I never really thought of this as something that would go on for decades. I just wanted a little support group for myself and my son. and It turned into this whole huge community, which is wonderful. I'm really glad it did. And I'm glad that we're able to provide the support and community for so many women that came after the original women in the group. And how do you see the pathway uh, for women in our world that it's changed since you became a single mother by choice? It has changed tremendously, which is really interesting. I mean, first of all, as I said, we didn't expect this to become a phenomenon. We just wanted a little support for ourselves and our children. That's the biggest thing. And the other changes that have happened are important ones also, like we used to be predominantly a white women's professional, white women's group. And we were predominantly East Coast, West Coast women as the group started to grow. And that has changed. Um, The age range has changed. The diversity is great. Really, we're a very diverse organization now. Women are not only from the coast, but also from the middle and the south. We certainly have a big Canadian presence as well. And the age range has shifted from really predominantly mid thirties to late twenties to mid forties. So that's expanded greatly, partly because fertility treatments have become much more accessible for the older women. And for the younger women, it seems that women are seeing this now as another life option, which they want to consider just while they're going through their early 20s to mid 20s and starting to focus on more in their late 20s. They want to think about whether they want to get married first and have a family or if they want to have a family and not get married and focus on their career or what version of those options, what order those options want uh, they want to have in their lives. It's not anymore as obvious a choice. We never thought this would be just another lifestyle choice, which is what Dan Quayle criticized Murphy Brown about in 1984 or whatever that was, Uh, 94, I think. Uh, There was a statement that got him on the front pages about this 
fictitious TV show character who had a child on her own. And he said, she represents this just as another lifestyle choice. And now it actually is. I never thought that would happen either. It is. And actually, um, I interviewed um, Sarah Kowalski from Motherhood Reimagined. And one of her tenets is the idea that this doesn't have to be a second or third choice. It is a viable first choice. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that's a really, a really great idea to bring into the conversation. And also you mentioned the fact that the, the age, of course, fertility treatment is making it easier for women in their late 30s and 40s. It moving down into the 20s, besides women who are thinking about this being a first option, do you feel like the education of women's fertility is starting to transmit to the field and women are starting to realize that just because some women are able to conceive later doesn't mean that most women do? That's a really excellent point. Um, in the early days, those of us who were hitting fertility problems in our late 30s, early 40s, were kind of surprised. Um, that we hadn't really thought that much about the fact that fertility is finite and especially with women, much more so than with men. And it certainly seems that women now are much more educated and aware about that fact. So they want to prepare and plan and think about their options before the option is um, either forced upon them or you know, sprung upon them to their surprise. And something in science that has advanced since you had your son that even for me 10 years ago when I had my son that has changed is the idea of egg freezing. And I've asked every single one of my guests and it's very interesting the response. What are your thoughts about egg freezing as part of reproductive health in all women? It's so interesting that you mentioned that. I do consultations with a lot of women who are thinking about this or in the early stages of planning or even beginning to try. And egg freezing is more, I hear about it almost in every consultation, especially with the younger women and even some of the middle range women uh, who have had that option, whereas some of the older women didn't when they were at their peak of fertility. It's interesting because if they think about this enough ahead of time, they can freeze their eggs while they're still much younger than um, the, the point where they're starting to lose some of their viability. So, you know, I think it's a great thing that women have this option. It's getting more and more successful in terms of the uh, outcome of, of the egg being usable and uh, viable. And I think it's made a huge difference in the sense of really helping women think this through and plan it just like they plan the rest of their lives. Right, and, and to think about it sooner than later, not, not wait until you feel like you've tried the quote unquote traditional pathway and it didn't work and so now what? Right, yes, it still is um, you know, an extreme for some people to think about doing something like that because they, they just um, you know, feel very optimistic and like we all did, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Of course, we'll meet somebody and we'll be happily married and uh, have a partner and a family and a white picket fence and all that. But, um, you know, sometimes the optimism is great until it's not. 
Exactly, exactly. You spend a lot of time um, really sharing about the daddy question. And for me, when I was thinking about this pathway, I spent about two years researching and thinking it through. And I'm the kind of person that I plan all the way mm -hmm. through, even if it doesn't turn out that way. Mm -hmm. And um, the daddy question for me was not a difficult one when I thought it through, because I think of it in terms of the family. You don't have siblings, you don't have a sister or a brother. It, it just is part of your family. Can you right. share um, some of your experience with women who stumble at this idea of the daddy question and kind of how you've seen the evolution of of the inclusivity of it just being and not being taboo, because I agree with something you said in the previous interview, which is all of this, anything that we present to our children, if we hesitate and act as if it is anything other than the way it is supposed to be, they pick up on that. And so our discomfort translates to something bigger to our children. So. What, what, how has the daddy question evolved? Right. Well, at the beginning, we really didn't know anything about how the um, single mother by choice family not having a dad in it would impact the children. We just worried about it a lot. And then we learned a lot because the adoption world had a sort of parallel situation, not in that there was no dad, but in that there was another biological set of parents. And they learned, unfortunately, the hard way that uh, secrecy about that subject or any subject that's important really turned out to be lethal. And that a lot of the problems with adoption weren't about adoption per se, but were about the secrecy that was surrounding the children knowing their life story and their true you know, story. So we benefited from their experience and we started to realize that it was important to let the children know their true story and to feel comfortable with it ourselves, as you mentioned, so that we could talk about it just as easily as we talked about anything else. And that that meant getting comfortable with it and if not by ourselves, getting the help of a therapist to help us get comfortable with it so we could figure out what made us uncomfortable about it in the first place. And it is very much our recommendation that we tell our children about it from the first week after their birth. So, you know, of course they have no idea what you're talking about, but so we can practice saying it and figure out how we feel about it and how we want to phrase it. And then as they start to understand making it into a little bedtime story about them or a bedtime story about chipmunks, if you prefer, some people, don't want to make it about the child. But children actually like having a story about them. So a lot of people do make it about them with pictures of the pregnant mom, maybe a pregnant picture with the uh, obstetrician, um, maybe a picture of who knows, anything that's related to their journey. And then at the end of the story, the, the big final page is, and that baby is you. And the nice thing about doing that kind of a story time story is that you change it as the, time, as the child gets old enough to understand more, starting with a very simple story about somebody who really wanted a baby, but there not being anybody around to be a daddy. And so a doctor helped her to have the baby. 
And then as the child gets older, you can add details as the child's understanding broadens so that it becomes um, a work in progress from the very beginning, really. And you made me think of another question. When your son started school, how did you um, how did you support the school system in understanding your family structure? Mm -hmm. It was interesting because back then it was still very much more controversial. I think it's still a little controversial, but nothing compared to that. So when I was um, taking my son around to different schools to see what they were like, and they were also interviewing us, um, that's something that you do in New York City sometimes to <laughs> deal with the school system. I had two different reactions, basically. One was, oh, your child is so adorable, so smart, so mature for his age, but we find that children from broken families don't really do well, so we're really sorry he wouldn't be a good fit for our school. The other side of the coin was, wow, you are a woman of courage. Your son is fabulous. He's terrific. He's smart. We would love to have him. So I got both reactions. And, you know, obviously I went with ones that were very supportive of us. And he had a good experience in the school, especially in the early stage when, you know, we didn't really, um, nobody knew anything about this whole phenomenon. And so it was not even something that we discussed, which in some ways, looking back on it, I regret I had an opportunity there to educate the other parents, which I wasn't doing, partly because I wasn't yet that comfortable with it myself. Um, but in general, the school could not have been more supportive, and we were very lucky in that respect. But I do think it's important for the school to know the story, because a lot of times they assume we were a broken home, which we weren't or that somebody died or that there was a divorce, which there wasn't. And so I felt it was really important to be honest, fully honest with the school to get you know, them on board and make sure that they were comfortable with it before we would want to be part of their community. And my personal gratitude for you walking that walk because I've had nothing but the second response. And, and as an educator did feel it incumbent um, in all fairness, you know, uh, for me and for women who are grappling with something different that society has not supported, um, I feel it is it is important if we can muster it up, which I'm that person, um, yeah. to, to educate because, you know, my child who's in fourth grade now, I now realize that by the time he graduates from high school, um, he will not be a small minority. He will be part of a diverse group of family structures. Um, and so thank you for, 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 I know that walk, it's a tough walk. And does it make you feel good to know that the second scenario is, is more common than the first these days? That is wonderful to hear. And I'm really happy about that. Um, it is amazing what education can do though, because educating people was really a huge success overall. Most people just didn't know how to wrap their minds around this whole thing and helping them understand it, and being open and honest about it really helped us all and helped them as you're saying, and it helped us you know, to really get it and figure out how to make it work for everybody. Right.
I know for me, my story was I, I had to do things in a different order. Um, and it was about timing. I, I have heard different women who have created a family of their own who say, you know, I'm not good at relationships. Therefore, this is now my relationship. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of the, the health for an individual woman and her own growth, as well as your thoughts about modeling being a healthy mother? I, I know even coming from a two-parent family in the 70s, my mother was so self-sacrificed saying that um, my sister and I talk about we wish she would have taken better care of herself to model it to us right so what are your thoughts not only about um, a mother putting that relationship into just the parent-child relationship and also what it for the individual woman at growing as she moves forward that's a really profound and great question. It's uh, it would take us a long, lot longer than this allows. Our time is not that long to really answer your question fully, because that is a very, very important topic. I do think that the child, in some way, um, can be very, very important to the mother in a healthy way, without becoming the significant other and that they really need to know that the mother's happiness is not their responsibility. I mean, that is something that's an adult responsibility, not a child's responsibility. And so when I hear somebody say, you know, I don't need other relationships, depending on how they mean that, that can be problematic. And yet I have to tell you as a therapist and even as a human, I see people, as you're saying, from two parent families every day whose parents use them. People say, you know, won't your children feel used by you because you're getting all your satisfaction from them? Well, not all of our satisfaction. And it's not just a, a single mother that is at risk of doing that. Any parent is at risk of doing it. Single mother, married mother, married father, they, each of them has that risk of using the child to meet their needs rather than the other way around. And it's a profound issue. As a psychotherapist, I see it all the time. Right. And triangulation, which two family homes are actually more susceptible, three is more right. stable, but doesn't necessarily right. mean more healthy. So an, an issue and something to be thought about, but not unique in terms of a, an appropriate, healthy child-parent relationship. You have a really special celebration coming up. Tell we us do. about it. Yes. Um, next month, October, is going to be our 40th anniversary as an organization. Um, and we are having a virtual celebration on Zoom with hundreds of attendees and many panels and many speakers. My son and my brand new grandson are going to make us short appearance. Um, and um, we are going to cover every possible topic that our members and potential members are interested in from what is it like to be dating after you're a single mother or even when you're trying to become a single mother, which is actually something that people do. Um, what do we say about daddy? There's a whole panel on that. I'm sorry, a whole presentation on that. We have a panel of the grown children from the SMCs who had them 20-something years ago, 
And we have another panel of the mothers that uh, had children in the earlier days and what it was like for them to be a single mother by choice in those days and how they found the experience to be for them. And we also have things on fertility and on finances and on uh, donor siblings, which is another hot topic, people who have connected with their donor sibling families or not. And we're discussing that. And there's just so much. And I'm really, really excited because not just because it's our 40th, which is exciting enough, but because I think it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful event. And I encourage people to come. It is. And, and I have to say, I'm excited because I would not have been able to to uh, fly across the country for it. And, <laughs> and I'm going to get to, you know, one of the unintended consequences, I guess, of, of this pandemic is people being able to join something so special. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and for me reaching my tenure uh, to yeah. proud to be to to belong to that to that organization. Yeah. When yeah. you look forward, what do you what do you see in the next forty years? Oh boy, um, you know I was so wrong about the previous forty years. I'm probably not the right person to answer that question. I was wrong, you know, as I said about so many things. I thought this would disappear after a few years. I don't know. I do think that this is becoming, as you suggested earlier, another choice of a lifestyle and not Plan B or C. I mean, for some people, the plan A is still the traditional family, and that's great if that's right for you. And if it isn't, it's really wonderful that there are other options, including this one. And families are looking already very, very different than they looked 40 years ago. That the nuclear family with the first marriage, you know, heterosexual couple is now a minority of the American family system. So I really, I wouldn't want to speculate except that I hope it becomes as embracing of all of us as possible. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to that in October. Registration is on singlemothersbychoice.org. We also have posted the flyer on our Instagram and on our definethenarrative.org oh, website um, and already got some likes. Go ahead. Thank you. I just wanted to mention, because I'm getting everyday questions about this, and we always forget to mention it, the event is being recorded so that anybody who registers will get a free recording if they can't be there for the whole thing and they don't you know, want to miss, or if they can't be there at all and they don't want to miss it, it's going to be given to them as a, as a part of their registration. Excellent. So they can go back. And I, I know for me, I I have a son. And so I'll be interested to hear the panel about the adult children going forward yeah. in, in our future. And, and again, just, just the utmost of gratitude, Jane. Um, I know you didn't do it for people like me. Um, but it, you know, the little bit that we do, it meant so much to me. I don't know that if it were for your organization, if I, I would have made it, although wow. it feels the absolute right choice for me, I tell everyone it's the best decision I've ever made and, um, and just immense gratitude. And I look forward to celebrating 40 years with you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to hear that. Thank you.